From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the CDC, that's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about one in three U.S. adults, that's 70 million people, have high blood pressure, also known as hypertension. We'll hear about the importance of knowing your blood pressure numbers from a Mayo Clinic expert. Generally, the risk, kidney disease, stroke, heart attack, starts to increase in the population over a number of about 115. Also on the program, we'll discuss diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of coronary artery disease. And in keeping with the heart theme, we'll have an update on the heart transplant program at Mayo Clinic from a transplant surgeon. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Blood pressure is determined by both the amount of blood that your heart pumps and the amount of resistance to blood flow there is in your arteries. That make sense? It sure does. Well, the more blood your heart pumps and the narrower your arteries, (laughs) the higher your blood pressure. And high blood pressure, which is also known as hypertension, generally develops over several years. doesn't happen suddenly. But here's the problem. Uncontrolled high blood pressure increases your risk for a lot of serious health problems, including heart attack, stroke, kidney problems. I guess that's why they call it the silent killer. It's a good thing you're an orthopedic surgeon and not a cardiologist. (laughs) Fortunately, hypertension can be easily detected. And once you know you have it, you can work with your doctor to control it. Here to discuss hypertension is Mayo Clinic nephrologist, Dr. Vincent Canzanello. Welcome to the program, Dr. Canzanello. Thank you. Glad to be here. Vincent, nice to have you. So you are a kidney specialist. So tell us the relationship between hypertension and the the kidney. Well... Um, one of the major risk factors for kidney failure is hypertension or high blood pressure. And since most people also that have kidney disease from other causes, they will eventually develop high blood pressure. So kidney doctors get to be pretty good at, ma- at assessing and managing high blood pressure. So do they, do you have kidney problems before you have heart problems from high blood pressure? You can, yes, you can. I mean, people can have kidney damage from other causes from infections or other immune diseases or whatever, but anything that can damage the kidney can impair our ability to get rid of salt. And as a result, we can have fluid buildup and develop high blood pressure from that. So how does high blood pressure damage the kidney? Is there? Can you explain that to an orthopedic surgeon? Sure. It, I mean, one, the, it does several things, but one of them is by the pounding on the arteries, that, the small arteries that supply the kidney, they can become progressively narrow, narrower, narrower. That is a it hard is word, hard isn't it? One. <laughs> Even for an intern. Yeah. And, um, and so that can reduce kidney blood flow, but also it can damage the filtering units of the kidney um, called the glomeruli, and that can indeed ab- reduce our ability to get rid of uh, salt and water normally. And, and that, then that makes the problems worse. Absolutely. So uh, hypertension, uh, a significant cause of kidney disease in this country? I know there are a lot of causes, it's but prob- high blood pressure, number it's one? probably the number two. The number one reason to be on dialysis in this country is from diabetes. Number two is high blood pressure. 
Wow. Um, so tell us about blood pressure. We tried to explain it a little bit in the in the introduction, but what's normal? And I know that we've all pretty much agreed over the years what normal is. What we uh, what has changed a little bit is what's abnormal and what you need mm-hmm. to treat. So explain that to us. Well, at least if we go by generally agreed upon number is 140 on the top number of the systolic and 90 for the bottom number of the diastolic. If using just that, those numbers alone, approximately one-third of the adults in the U.S. have hypertension. So anything less than that is considered normal. If you're above 140 or over 90, that's too high. That's kind of a, it's a moving target yeah. now because yeah. there's generally the risk of various disorders that you've brought up, kidney disease, um, stroke, heart attack, starts to increase in the population over a number of about 115 oh, uh, really? systolic. And so that's an epidemiologic association. But so that, if you say what is the absolute normal blood pressure, it's probably less than 120 over 80. Um, the question is, though, of making getting it down to that low level with medicines and all that, is that beneficial? And there are some studies now recently reported that actually taking people that maybe we should be targeting blood pressures in the 120s over 70s to 80s as opposed to the classic less than 140 over 90. You know, isn't it interesting how yeah. things have uh, changed? And once again, you have to have lived as long as I have to remember this. But I can remember my mom saying, who had high blood pressure, that it was okay as long as the systolic number was 100 plus your age or lower. That's right. That was that, Remember that, that? That was what, what I was taught in medical school also. Is that right? Um, and the fact that the reason it was thought to be why, it's a funny term, essential hypertension. Why would it be essential? <laughs> and it was because the thought was the reason the blood pressure is going up is to perfuse our aging organs that are getting atherosclerosis and narrowing. So, that, so the pressure needs to be higher. So, right, it's essential. Wow. And so uh. as a result, my professors would say that that's the worst thing you could do is lower blood pressure that's trying to maintain perfusion of to these critical organs. Well, yeah, because yeah. if if you get blood pressure then that is too low, you can have problems with fainting. And that's if, right. if we're talking about an elderly part of the population... That's a, that's, right. that's a big concern. Right. And so the original studies that looked at lowering the top number or systolic blood pressure, they did actually um, cognitive studies, mental functioning studies to make sure that these people weren't starting to develop memory issues or from a reduced perfusion of the brain. And it turns out, actually, the high perfusion of the brain of high blood pressure is associated more with cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, and the like. So it was the, it's been the total opposite. Is it normal for blood pressure to go up at all as you age? Yes. At blood pressure, what typically happens is our systolic blood pressures start to increase once we're in our 50s, and it's a continuous increase. Um, such that by in, in our 80s, probably 80% of the population will be defined as having hypertension with a s- systolic blood pressure greater than 140. Once we're in our 50s also, the diastolic or bottom uh, component starts to decline. 
And so as a result, one's going up, one's going down, and the reason for that is we're losing elasticity of our blood vessels, and that's elasticity is what maintains the bottom number or the diastolic. So it's typical we call it a pulse pressure. Uh, the pulse pressure meaning a high systolic and a low diastolic, and that correlates pretty well with atherosclerotic disease and uh, bad outcomes in terms of um, like you say, heart failure, kidney failure, stroke, and the like. But no matter uh, what your age, once it gets over the systolic, the, the upper number gets over 140, you probably ought to have it treated. The, the actual studies um, up until just recently supported that you should treat, um, it should be treated if it, the top number is above 150. Oh. That's what most of the evidence showed. So mainly getting it into the 140s if you're over 60 years of age uh, was acceptable. There has been a recent study that looked at trying to lower blood pressure to less to, to down to 120 over 80. It's called the SPRINT study. And, and it, it actually had very favorable outcomes in terms of those endpoints we talked about, heart failure, stroke, um, things like that. And they actually looked at a group of patients over 75 and showed the same benefit. Mm. And there was, although the risk was low blood pressures and things like that, that you talked about lightheadedness mm -hmm. and all, but the biggest finding was there was no increased risk of injurious falls. Wow, interesting. Dr. Vincent Canzanella, he's a kidney specialist and hypertension expert. Time for a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, only 50% of Americans with hypertension have their condition under control. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is hypertension expert, Dr. Vincent Canzanello, myth or matter of fact. Only 50% of Americans with hypertension have their condition under control. Is that a myth or a fact, Dr. Canzanello? That is a fact. Wow. Um, that's been shown in multiple studies, and that means first you have to know you have high blood pressure, so has it been diagnosed? Then you have to be on treatment, and then if you're on treatment, it has to be controlled, and the number would be less than 140 over 90. And when you require those three things, it's roughly 50%, and, and it's lower for minorities and um uh, lower socioeconomic classes. Are most people waiting to feel like they have high blood pressure, or is it becoming discovered when they come in to get their blood pressure checked? It's usually discovered during routine checkups. Okay. It's really an asymptomatic condition, although I'm not totally convinced. I think people generally don't feel well with uncontrolled hypertension. There have been some studies that have looked at depression or energy levels, things like that, untreated versus on treatment. And those things seem to improve with treatment. So I'm not sure they were totally asymptomatic. Don't you also have a big problem with the fact that because so many people are asymptomatic, that you give them a medication and uh, number one, there are some side effects and number two, they don't feel any better. So they stop taking it. Well, that, well, that's that's true. Again, though, when when it's been really looked at versus placebos, the majority sugar, sugar of the pills. sugar pills, right? Mm -hmm. The majority of people actually uh, feel better. 
The drugs that you have to treat hypertension, some of them have been around for years, correct? Some of the the, the first-line drugs that you use to to treat it. But uh, for more recalcitrant cases, do you have better drugs than we used to have? There there are uh, far better drugs now um, that have been developed, and they can compare those, again, to sugar pills. And the majority, you can't tell the difference. Patients can't tell in the... um, clinicians that are treating them can't tell. They're really well tolerated. They're ones used by orthopedic surgeons um, that have to operate, airline pilots, uh, things like that that can't allow mental Mm -hmm. uh, interference with mental functioning. And these are real, and they do very well with these classes. Are patients more keen these days to try to uh, modify lifestyle behaviors or are they still I want to be on a medication. What are you seeing in your practice? Well, generally what I would do um, for almost everybody is probably at least a three-month trial of dietary or lifestyle measures. There have been some studies that have taken people that have been on treatment that want to get off and they've been well controlled for a year. And so we, we the, the investigators, they stopped everything and about a third of those patients actually remained with normal blood pressures for at least over a year or so. But if you look at who they were, they were usually ones that got religion, we say. I mean, yeah. they if they were heavy drinkers, they'd cut back on alcohol. If they were heavy in weight, they've lost weight, or they were high salt users. I mean, they've done something. The ones that had not made any change, as soon as they were off the drugs, the blood pressures came back up to the high levels. If you keep your blood pressure under control, can you avoid pretty much all the complications? Uh, generally, uh, that, that is true in terms of the heart heart and, uh, and reducing risk of stroke and all that. But there are other factors that, are beyond, that can be high cholesterol. They can be cigarette smokers. Sure. So you can attack one risk factor. But if you don't really look go after the other ones, you're probably still going to be in, uh, have a, a poor outcome. I've heard sometimes the criticism that uh, checking the high blood pressure at the doctor's office uh, kind of gives you a false number because you're a little bit stressed out or your number will be high, uh, higher than normal. And so monitoring at home maybe would give you a better idea. Is that true? That's ab- absolutely true. What you're describing is called white coat hypertension, <laughs> or we call it office effect or white coat effect. And it's seen in about 20% of patient people that have elevated readings in the office and normal blood pressures at home. So do you pr- do you propose that folks monitor it more at home than coming into the office? Uh, absolutely. I should also say there's another, it's called masked hypertension or reverse white coat hypertension or office normotension really? that where blood pressures are completely normal in the office, but at home they're markedly elevated, or by ambul- what's called automated or ambulatory blood pressure. And we think those are some of the people that, oh, we saw as residents and all that came in with a stroke but had absolutely normal office blood pressures, and people said, well, they have no, no risk factor for stroke. And this is seen in about 10 or 20% of people, and you're only wow. going to know that by measuring home blood pressures. And if you're going to measure your blood pressure at home, uh, tell us, uh, how about some recommendations? What kind of uh, device, how often, what position, etc.? Yeah. Uh, in general, the, the farther away you are from the heart, 
the less accurate is the blood pressure measurement. So the, naturally, you can't measure it directly, in, but you, in the arm, so that is considered more accurate than the wrist, and the least accurate are those finger devices mm. that the are used. The further the way you are from the heart, the l- less accurate. accurate the reading. And yeah. so our gold standard is, an, is the arm uh, because you have to have the right cuff size, and it can be checked directly against the gold standard, which would be the aneroid sphygmomanometer in an office. And our nurses, for example, can do that. So we know exactly simultaneously what the blood pressure is in your device and, and what it is by a gold standard. So if nothing else, we can give you a fudge factor for sure. the readings. What is a, a good uh, home monitoring device cost? I mean, I, I'm sure there's some. So yeah. I want to know what's too cheap. Yeah, generally the um, the ones that are in the Mayo store, for example, that our nurses have checked for accuracy, run in the seventy to hundred dollar range. Well, that and that wow. because it gives you uh, several different cuffs because the importance of uh, the right cuff size is important. It stores up to a hundred. They store up to a hundred readings. Um, and so, the, and some of them are now transmissible over the internet. Should you check your blood pressure in different positions, laying down, sitting, standing, or does that really matter? Well, the, all, every study has always used the seated blood pressure with feet on the floor, arms supported at the level of the heart. That's, but we would tell people certainly, and that's the beauty of home monitoring. If you feel lightheaded, you can do a blood pressure, and mm-hmm. it could be excessively low. So we might back off on treatment. We may be over-treating, but these are things that we'll never know without home readings. We have just a moment left, and so we've talked about it a little bit, but some tips for prevention of high blood pressure. What do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, generally, the the uh, major factors are related to dietary so- salt or sodium chloride intake. Uh, cigarette smoking has been associated with an elevated blood pressure. Um, other uh, obesity, um, prob- un- undiagnosed conditions such as sleep apnea can raise the blood pressure, and sometimes it's, that's the simple. You treat the sim- you s- treat sleep apnea, and the blood pressures improve. Um, Too much smoking, and, salt, obesity—the big ones, huh? Those, those are the um, so, and the other thing we find in terms of drugs, it's the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the naprosins and ibuprofens. They raise your they, blood pressure. They raise the blood pressure. They generally tell the kidney to hold on to salt more avidly. And so they can counteract the effects of the water pills we're using to try to get rid of salt. <laughs> oh, man. I just so. live with the pain, I guess it is, huh? <laughs> Dr. Vincent Canzanello, kidney specialist, hypertension, high blood pressure expert. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss treatment and prevention of coronary artery disease. And later on in the show, we'll get an update on the heart transplant program at Mayo Clinic. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
No woman wants to hear the words, you have breast cancer. The diagnosis can be frightening and thoughts turn to treatment. Some women worry about complications of treatment, one of which is lymphedema or swelling of the arms after surgery or radiation. Lymphedema is one of the most feared complications we have with breast cancer. Mayo Clinic surgeon Dr. Sarah McLaughlin says lymphedema causes uncomfortable and unsightly swelling of the arm. Plus, it's a constant reminder of the of the treatment that they went through. Why lymphedema happens is unclear, but it likely has to do with an imbalance in the lymph system after surgery or radiation. Now, exercise has long been considered a no-no for women who've gone through treatment because the thought was moving increased your risk of developing lymphedema or making it worse. But recent research shows otherwise. There's really, at this point, not a downside to exercise. We tell all of our patients to exercise. Use your arm and be active. And in other news, the American Academy of Pediatrics says infants should sleep in the same bedroom as their parents or caregivers for at least six months to decrease the risks of sleep-related deaths. However, the new policy also states the infant should sleep on a separate surface, a crib or bassinet, and not on a couch or soft surface. The Academy says approximately 3,500 infants die annually in the U.S. from sleep-related deaths, including sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. Now, Dr. David Soma with the Mayo Clinic Children's Center says that it's not entirely clear why some evidence would support that staying in the same room as parents but not in the same bed would be potentially protective. This could be a marker for some other factor or something not fully understood, but there is some data to support this practice. And he adds that more investigations may be needed, but ultimately the message remains the same to everyone and that we need to minimize the risk while optimizing sleep for parents and children. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Coronary artery disease, or CAD. Now, that's when the major blood vessels that supply your heart with blood and oxygen and nutrients become damaged or diseased or clogged. Now, cholesterol-containing deposits, you probably know that as plaque mm-hmm. in the arteries, and associated with inflammation is usually to blame. And when that plaque builds up, that narrows your coronary arteries and decreases the blood flow to your heart. And, of course, that can cause symptoms like shortness of breath, chest pain, fatigue, etc. And if one of those or one or more of those arteries gets completely clogged, it can cause the big one, a heart attack. Not good. <laughs> the good news is... There is good news? Yeah, there, are good, there is. The good news is there's plenty that you can do to prevent and treat coronary artery disease. Here to discuss diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of cor- coronary artery disease is the Division Chair of Cardiovascular Diseases, Dr. Chet Rehal. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rehal. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back. Dr. Rehal, nice to see you. Great so, to see you. Coronary artery disease, still a major killer of Americans. It is. It's one of the leading killers of Americans, and if you couple it with stroke, it remains the leading killer of Americans. So it's something that we have made a lot of progress on over the past few decades, but we still have much more work to do. In terms of progress, you're talking mainly about progress in treating the problem once it develops and not so much in people aren't doing a very good job of keeping the cholesterol and the plaque out of their arteries, or are they? It's sort of both, actually. Since the 1960s, since the original Surgeon General's report, I believe in 1963, that identified smoking as a significant risk factor, 
smoking, rates of hypertension or high blood pressure have steadily gone down, and death rates from coronary disease have gone down. Now, the issue is that there are many other risk factors besides these two. You've mentioned one, which is cholesterol. There are many other things, such as our lifestyle, our diet. The prevalence of diabetes is increasing, as you know. There's an epidemic of diabetes in this country. Diabetes itself causes vascular disease, which affects the heart, causes strokes, affects the legs, etc. So we've replaced one set of risk factors with another set of risk factors. And because of this, we're seeing shifts in the pattern of coronary disease. So it's something that all of us need to be concerned about. So one of the questions that I often get asked is, what are the risk factors? And I say, gosh, just being born is a risk factor (laughs) because it's something we are all at risk for, whether or not we have a family history, whether or not we smoke, because it is so common for a myriad of factors. There are some things that can accentuate the problem, like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high blood sugar. Does it matter if it's a hereditary type of high cholesterol problem or one that you are eating high cholesterol? Does that make a difference? It does, actually. The hereditary types of high cholesterol are actually quite serious, and they they give us basically super high cholesterol values, values so high that we can't bring them down just with diet, exercise, and our usual medications. Fortunately, there are new classes of medications that are given as injectables under the skin that can reduce even that super high cholesterol. Your other part of your question was about dietary cholesterol. So that also is is a problem, but we have to remember our bodies can make cholesterol even if we're not eating it. Our livers can make as much cholesterol as they want. So part of it is our genetic makeup. It's our lifestyle. It's our weight and the, and all the other risk factors. You know, it's interesting. Neither of you are old enough to remember this, but with the first Surgeon General's report in 1960 did not mention heart disease and stroke as being caused by smoking. It was lung cancer only. It was years later that the reports finally came out that there was actually a correlation with heart disease and and stroke. So it it, it took longer. We haven't known that long, but it's interesting that you mentioned smoking right off the top. Huge risk factor. It's a huge risk factor. We're fortunate that here in America the rates of smoking have gone way down. They're in the teens. I'm always struck when I travel to Europe or Asia, Mm. very high. Isn't it true? It's double, triple what it is here. All right, so we've talked about the uh, the risk factors. Let's talk about the warning signs. What might you uh, feel uh, or notice that uh, should suggest to you that you ought to have your, your heart checked? Well, you mentioned some of these in your introductory comments. So the classic type of symptoms, the crushing chest pain, the elephant sitting on the chest, pressure or tightness when people walk, if, if people are experiencing those, that could be a real warning sign. The tricky part is that coronary disease can present atypically, particularly in women. And we as physicians have to learn to have our radar up when we hear these more atypical symptoms. What sure. are theirs? It could be sharp chest pain. It could be a feeling of anxiety, a feeling of weakness. It may not be the typical sort of central chest heaviness that male patients may get. So we really have to be attuned to, to the fact that it can present differently in different patients. And anxiety is a symptom I just heard you mention. I mean, that's something that a woman could talk herself out of and no, no problem at all. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. And, in fact, that happens. You know, We've seen many of our women patients, 
feel that they they have too much on their plate. Who's going to pick up the, the kids from school? Who's <laughs> going to make dinner for the husband? And they carry the weight of the family on their shoulders. I mean, many many of our patients do, and they don't get checked out. But I think it's really important for our, our audience to recognize the fact that you have to be vigilant and you have to be careful about denial. How many of our own colleagues do you know who have had shortness of breath for a few weeks or can't go up as many stairs as they used to or have a little bit of chest pain and sort of ignore it and deny that there might be something wrong and then have a heart attack. Physicians make bad patients. Yeah. I was going to say, I think there's a saying that has to do yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so shortness of breath, uh, difficulty going up and down stairs that used to be relatively easy for you, uh, fatigue, anxiety, yeah. all those things. All of those you you got to have your ticker checked. And if, and if we came in and had those symptoms, what, what would you do? How would you figure it out? Well, so the first thing is we get a good consultation, a good history and physical, and then we do what's called a functional test. If patients are able, we'd like to run them on a treadmill with or without some imaging of their heart where we actually take a look at their heart and see how the heart is handling this activity level. And if there are severe blockages, these tests are very good at picking up those severe blockages in a non-invasive manner. And then that can lead to other things. And certainly better to know up front uh, before you have the, the heart attack, because if you don't get it treated right away, the muscle can die and your heart will never be the same, huh? Absolutely. We can treat heart attacks, and we treat heart attacks every single day. We can treat them well, but it's better to prevent a heart attack than have to treat a heart attack. So let's talk about that prevention. We have just a moment left. What, uh, what are some good tips for prevention for us? So a lot of the things my mother used to tell me, maintain a good lifestyle, <laughs> You know, watch the weight. I think we live in a land of plenty, and we tend to eat plenty. That's often the root cause of a lot of this. I've seen patients lose 40, 50, 60 pounds and then watch their cholesterol come down, their blood pressure come down, their high blood sugar melt away. So if we can maintain ideal body weight and have a, at least a moderately active lifestyle, That'll help with all the other traditional risk factors that I've just mentioned. Is that that 30 minutes a day kind of moderate activity? Absolutely. Even if it's just brisk walking, you don't have to be a marathon runner. And it's important to come in and see your physician fairly regularly, get those things checked, because if they are a problem, you can get them under control and prevent heart disease and strokes. Absolutely. There's a lot we can do, both, uh, uh, again, with lifestyle and, and activity, and a lot we can do with medications if necessary. All right, Dr. Chet Rehall, Division Chairman, Cardiovascular Diseases, Mayo Clinic. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll keep the focus on the heart as we talk heart transplants with a Mayo Clinic transplant surgeon. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Heart transplant. It's a surgery to remove a person's diseased heart and replace it with a healthy heart from a deceased donor. Now, that's an operation you don't want to have unless you really need it. Most heart transplants are done on patients who have end-stage heart failure. Now, end-stage means the condition is so severe that all the treatments, other than heart transplant, have failed. Survival rates for people receiving heart transplants have improved, especially in the first year after the transplant. According to the National Institutes of Health, almost 90% of patients survive the first year after transplant surgery, and 75% survive five years. Here to talk about heart transplant at Mayo Clinic is cardiovascular surgeon Dr. Richard Daly. Welcome to the program, Dr. Daly. 
Well, thank you very much for having me, Tom and Tracy. <laughs> Appreciate <laughs> being here. Dr. Daly, nice to see you. It's Richard Daly, but you go by Rocky. Where'd you get that nickname? Why do your friends call you Rocky? Uh, that's been my name my whole life. When I went to kindergarten, uh, <laughs> they asked for Richard, and nobody put their hands up. I was looking around for who that would be, so uh, as long as I remember. So your parents started calling you Rocky from I think I day looked, one. I think I looked beat up uh, from birth. And, <laughs> I have it. to say, if you were my heart transplant surgeon, I would feel pretty good about saying Rocky is my surgeon. Yeah, That's Rocky a good deal. Yeah, the Rock. So you've been doing this a long time. Uh, how many heart transplants do you think you've done, or do you keep count? Uh, we know how many we've done at Mayo Clinic, and I've been involved with the majority of them. We've done uh, a little over 600 now. Um, and the year I was training, we did uh, about 150 that year, and I was involved with most of them. So, so the, it's I haven't become been involved less with all of these, but uh, a good portion of those. It's become less common? You said you no. did 150 when no, you were oh, your trained, toll training. Yes. Well, no. no, and I trained in London for a oh. year, and they have a little different system where they did at the time. Not as many centers and few centers doing a lot. But um, uh, at Mayo here now, we're up uh, around 600. How many do you do each year? We do about uh, 30 per hmm. year, and uh, that puts us in uh, a little above average uh, by the, around the country. There are three heart transplant centers in our state, and we share donors, so we have uh, a limited access to donors, and that's what limits it. The number of transplants per year in our country has been pretty fixed over the last few years, around 2,500 a year. People still haven't gotten the message that being an organ donor is important. Um, well, I hope more people do, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, but that's, I think that's the big message to get mm-hmm. out to the public and the reason I appreciate being here. So how many people on the waiting list right now? We have about 100 on our waiting list here. And, and how they, many around, Sorry. I was just going to say, and are they hanging around campus here just waiting, or where are they? No, some are sick enough that they're in the hospital and waiting, and uh, uh, some are around town uh, because they're higher up on the waiting list, but most of them can be at home. Um, and I think there's, what, some 3,000 around the country who are waiting for a heart transplant. Does that, that sound about right? That's about right. So what do you do in between? Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that some patients die waiting for a, for a heart transplant, mm-hmm. but you have other ways to keep these patients alive, don't you, even if their heart completely fails? Right. So the first step, of course, is medications. And the medications today for heart failure are very good. And we end up taking some patients off the list once they get optimized on heart failure medications and they get better. Uh, In uh, other situations when they're deteriorating, then the next step is mechanical support. The heart is a pump. So theoretically, you just need a pump to pump the blood. And that's been a challenge to get something that will do well in the bloodstream. But uh, we have good pumps now, and we're able to support uh, a lot of people to transplantation. And and many people uh, live on uh, these pumps for even a number of years. The, the left ventricular assist device is the primary device that we use. And the current devices are continuous flow devices that are, are very durable now. But, but they have to carry it around with them, right? I mean, Oh, yeah. The, the pump is implanted, and then there's a little cable that comes out through the skin that goes to batteries and to a controller. And those things are uh, about the size of an, uh, a little old, older-fashioned phone to carry around. Um, and uh, 
But the uh, pump is actually in the body, inside the body. Yes. So it's taking the place of the heart. It, it's a little pump inside the body. It assists the heart. It's uh, like a little propeller that's on that's uh, pumping the blood. It takes the blood out of the heart and out of the left ventricle and puts it around to the aorta. And uh, uh, it can pump all the blood the body needs. But we don't remove the heart with these devices. Um, we leave the heart and the right ventricle is still pumping. What about a multi-organ transplant? The last person that I know who had a heart transplant also had lung transplant at the same time. So we do a number of multi-organ transplants uh, at Mayo, and the reason we can be uh, sort of have some expertise at that here is because of the uh, uh, collaboration with our colleagues. It's so so available in, in liver and kidney and lung uh, surgery. So uh, yes, we do a number of combined organ transplants. We've done more combined heart and liver transplants than others in the world, although that's still only about uh, a little over 40 that we've done in our experience. And uh, combined heart and lung transplants have become rare in this country, but we uh, can do uh, a couple of a year if we have patients that are sick enough for that. What has made uh, heart transplant more successful today than it was a decade or two ago? Well, it's been, in the last decade, it's been incremental changes. A couple of decades back, the medications really changed dramatically. There was a kind of quantum improvement with uh, cyclosporin, and now we use tacrolimus. But uh, in the last decade, there's been gradual improvements in care and uh, better understanding of immunosuppression, better testing for antibodies, and uh, and better care with uh, infectious diseases, which is a great help from our infectious disease colleagues. So your uh, ability to prevent the body from ejecting the organ is better than it used to be? It is, and our ability to monitor for it has gotten better. So you do, um, what, one and a half of these a, a month or so. Um, how many could you do? How, how many people are out there? You said you've got 100 sitting around here, but um, if you had as many hearts available as as you needed, how many would you be doing a year? Yeah, that's a great question because if uh, obviously the waiting list is a little bit limited, everybody realizing that we're only going to do so many. So there's sure. a certain selection that occurs. And uh, there was an estimate by the uh, 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 Institute of Medicine, oh, maybe two decades ago, that we could would do as many as 50,000 transplants in this country for a year if we had the, had the hearts. That was two decades ago. Um, uh, hard to know exactly what that means, but clearly we would do a, a lot more. two or three times at least more than what we're doing now. And then once you put the new heart in the uh, the recipient, do you have to shock it to get it going usually, or does it sort of start beating spontaneously sometimes? The, each little muscle beats spontaneously once you give it blood and get it going. And the shock just resets all the muscles so that they contract simultaneously. And often they'll start contracting simultaneously, and occasionally we shock it so that they reset and beat together. And Boom, finally, it's beating. <laughs> and finally, what research is being done? What to, What is in the future? Well, uh, more advancement in the mechanical assist devices, uh, uh, better uh, uh, immunosuppression, which we've been working on here, and... Uh, and perhaps other sources of hearts, uh, uh, such as pig hearts, xenotransplantation, and uh, uh, those are probably the main things right now. It's of course, yep. Dr. Rocky Daly, heart transplant surgeon, you do great work, and thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me here. Thanks, and I hope everybody remembers to consider donating.
And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.